When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Life is full of surprises. Consider the fate of this creature's poor mother. Struck down in the fourth month of her maternal condition by an elephant, a wild elephant. Struck down on an uncharted African isle. The result is plain to see. Ladies and gentlemen, the terrible elephant man. Hi, everyone. I'm Mike. And I'm Dan. Welcome back to 15 Minute Film Fanatics. This week, we're doing my pick, which is The Elephant Man. The Elephant Man, 1980, directed by David Lynch. I mean, featuring everybody you could want to be in a movie. Anthony Hopkins, John Hurt, and Bancroft. You know, like what more do you want? So I love this movie. I insisted Dan watch this movie. Dan, what'd you think? I saw this movie for the first time when I was 12 years old. And I remember sitting in the theater um, you know, with my other 12 year old friends, you know, her, you know, okay, I'll see what this is about. It was the kind of thing where you went to the movies every Saturday and still remembering scenes from this later, you know, you know, decades and decades later. So it certainly has staying power, but what I want to talk about in the beginning, and I want to get your reaction to something, but it requires a little bit of a setup. We're told in the beginning about the source material in the opening credits, right? There's Frederick, there's Treves's book, right? And there's parts of a 1971 book by, by this guy, Ashley Montague, who wrote a book called the elephant man, a study in human dignity. He was an anthropologist, Montague was. Now that book inspired the play, which I'm sure you've heard about, big hit play, 1977, it premieres in London, um, starring David Schofield, the guy that plays darts in American Werewolf in London, <laughs> who gets suspicious. And then it was on Broadway in 1979. You might know this, it was revived with David Bowie. It was revived um, in 2014 with Bradley Cooper playing, playing John Merrick. Bernard Pomerantz, who wrote the, the, the play, actually sued the production company for the film, and he actually won. There's a disclaimer in the credit that says nothing of this was based upon the play, but he sued and won. Okay, anyway, why do I say this all? Because I want to get your reaction to something. In the play, 
and I assume you don't know this, and maybe some of our, our listeners don't, but it's, a, it's an exciting idea. There's no makeup. When you play John Merrick on stage, the, the script insists there are no prosthetics and there's no makeup. And it's interesting to think about the experience of watching this story where you don't get, because you get in the, in the film, of course, you get this unbelievably great makeup, right? And the difference in the experiences between those two things and how that would affect the issues of the movie. There is a lot to think about. I Well, I, I guess my, my initial reaction is if you were going to do it with makeup, there's nobody else who could direct this but David Lynch because David Lynch knows exactly when and how to use the makeup or not use the makeup. Um, I can understand the technical challenges of trying to act this without the makeup. I do think that John Hurt gives the performance of a lifetime inside the makeup, but making so much of his personality come out of this amalgamation of clearly whoever they got to work on that plus himself, plus David Lynch's direction. So yeah, no, that is, that's a very, that is a very interesting idea, but definitely if you're doing it with makeup, you need David Lynch because he's got that, he's got that special genius of taste for exactly how much grotesque is the right amount. Well, let's talk about how much grotesque is the right amount. Now, as you know, and I'm sure you thought of this when you rewatched it for the show today, John's face is introduced in the exact same way as the shark is in Jaws. You get little glimpses of it. And then finally, 30 minutes into the movie, you know, the nurse walks in. But we're, we're able to read so much expression into that, that sack over his head, into that one little eye hole, right? But what it reminded me of watching this again, I couldn't shake this idea was, it's exactly the same idea as Dr. Pimple Popper or My 600 Pound Life or all of these shows uh, you know, on, on, on TV, like my, The Thousand Pound Twins, where you're invited to watch these quote unquote freaks and, and kind of like you're just staring at them. Like so little has changed. But what the Elephant Man does is it injects like a moral voice into all that. When, when Treves comes in and says, you know, it's not just a freak show. What's interesting about the film, though, is that I think, and I don't know if this is ever resolved, I think the movie gets it both ways. The movie is, is about how what you look like is not important. But of course, it's also about what you look like defines you and what you look like is important. And John is introduced to us with all the same techniques that Mr. Bites would use in his carnival, right? He says, you know, I'm not an animal, but the movie works because you so often present it as an animal. And 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 I'm not saying, you know, the movie doesn't become sentimental. It doesn't become a very special episode, but I'm not sure that David Lynch ever resolves the tension between, you know, the way you look is not important at all. And the way you look is absolutely important. Well, I'll say at least this much for Lynch's art, because I think I already tipped my hand in previous episodes as to what I, what I think of David Lynch, um, which is that I feel like, 25 or 30 minutes into the makeup being fully revealed and John Hurt fully acting as the elephant man living in London society, receiving guests, I've grown accustomed to his face. And so in the beginning, when you're set up, they create an expectation. They give you a glimpse. He's covered by a sheet. You see it fully during the rehearsal scene, which is quite shocking, right? And But I think before the third act, of the movie actually finally shows up, you've already grown accustomed to it. I I've grown accustomed to it. I've learned to, as, as you said correctly, to read emotion in it. And so 
imagine if you did that from the beginning, if you did that from act one, the shock would be gone by act two. You wouldn't have an act three. So the structure, the Lynchian structure of this is to keep it hidden, to keep it masked act one, to show you and let you grow accustomed to it act two, and then to wring all the pathos out of you that can possibly be wrung out like a sponge act three, because there's people for whom your act three is their act one. And you're saying, well, but, but don't you, but don't you understand? Right. And and that's, that's the, that, that's the fundamental misunderstanding that I think drives, drives the film is it depends your, your emotional reaction, your, your reaction of how grotesque it is depends on where you are in your level of exposure. Yeah. When did you, when did you press play? in the story of John Merrick is going to affect how you react. Because after the shock of the makeup wears off and then you kind of get used to it and it's not shocking, then you get the next, David Lynch is smart enough to give you the next shock is when he walks in with a suit on. Like, isn't that shocking when he walks in like fully dressed in, in a suit and 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 you get the shock of him knowing the rest of the Psalm and you get the shock of, the of, of you get other emotional shocks. Like when he says, um when he says to uh, Anthony Hopkins when they're in his house and he says, is that the way that most pictures are arranged on mantles in most houses? And you're like, he's never been in a house. He has no idea what it's like to be inside a house. And so you get all these other shocks. Like he gives you the big shock of the makeup, but then you get a lot of these other like um, aftershocks. How careful they are with your exposure to the makeup is really what what drives the film. Obviously, the play works a totally different. It must work a totally different way because there's nothing for for you to become accustomed. The movie also works like The Miracle Worker. It also works like Rain Man, where you have this one, you know, you have this one character who's got him, who's got to work with the other character who's different. And I think what's interesting about that, that the, the the movie is their relationship. And and you know, it's easy to look at the makeup, but it's easy to talk about John Hurt, who deserves a lot of credit. But you know, you have to think about how great Anthony Hopkins is in this movie too. A hundred percent. Um, I think it takes a lot to be the straight man in this film, especially given what everybody knows about Anthony Hopkins roles that he hadn't even played in 1980, that he's extremely plastic. He's extremely dynamic. Uh, he can morph into whatever he wants. So for him to play a totally stiff character, for him to play somebody who kind of has an elephant man inside um, and who's, you know, whose heart grows kind of like Grinch style um, from two to two sizes, too small to about just right. That is a very dynamic performance from from Anthony Hopkins, who's in total control of what he's like. And there's that great bit where he says, "I like, why am, am I any different from Mr. Bites? Like, why am I doing this? Am I a good man? Am I a bad man? Am I doing this to advance my career? Because the viewer figures that out before he does. The viewer figures out, at least I did that, that and I'm sure you did too, which, which is that, oh yeah, now people are going to the hospital. It's it's just like the circus. It's it's the same. It's like he's just in a different circus now. And I think that he that Anthony Hopkins has that great scene where he's vulnerable and he says, like, why am I doing this? Am I just? Is it just?" because I am a good person or am I doing it because I want to tell myself I'm a good guy. But that, but that leads to the, but that leads to the growth of love. I think the interesting thing about it is not the question. It's your response to the question. And so I think that what his character finds out is that good people experience ambiguity. George Orwell said, by the time he is 50, every man has the face he deserves. And I think this film makes you think about, okay, to what extent is that true? And to what extent is that not true? Because if you if you really think about I think about that quotation all the time. And I think of people I know and I'm like, yep, that's exactly how that person should look for, for you know, for we kind of read in what we know about somebody's emotions into their face. And this movie says, well, how how 
How long can you do that for? And to what extent can you do that? Because doesn't Anthony Hopkins look like he should in the film? I don't mean just look like a like an Edwardian doctor. I mean he's he's very he looks very gentle. He looks very um uh, patient. He looks kind, and those are all the things that come out in his face, right? But then you have John Merrick, and is that is that quote the face he deserves? Well, uh, it's probably not, but. Uh, but he has the emotions that he deserves, which is that he can really freely, openly laugh and cry, despite the fact that like his his nasal passages won't allow him to laugh and cry. And when uh, Anthony Hopkins character finally cries, he sheds like he sheds two tears, which is a, is a lot for him. And so I think that their mutual characterizations are perfect. Welcome back, everybody. In part two, we talk about our favorite moments. Mike, what's yours? Well, my moment is the first real shock of the film for me, which is that Anthony Hopkins is discussing with John Gilgood why he tried to coach John through it uh, so that they could care for him, that this is truly where he belongs, that he's misunderstood. And even though he's making this impassioned plea, what they hear through the door is that John finishes the psalm. And Anthony Hopkins says, I didn't teach him that part, which which is. Does he believe what he's just been saying to his boss? He does, but he doesn't really fully believe it because there's more there's more human in there than he anticipated. What he was trying to argue for is not to send him to the mental institution or to or to send him away, which is barbaric. So he's not barbaric, but he's not fully convinced that John is as human as he is. Why? Because he knows the full psalm and he's got to get John to recite it. But the but the beauty of that moment is he realizes that he's not just telling the truth, that the truth is way beyond anything that he's been saying. And he's caught just as off guard as his boss, as the world will be, as London society will be when they when they open up his parlor. And that, that's that's our assumption as well, right? So we're we're constantly we're 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 made to keep pace by the structure with Anthony Hopkins as to what we expect and what our assumptions are about John. And it's a beautiful, brilliant way. To explode all of our assumptions and and leave you unsure as to where you are. You know, and the the film does one thing right, which is, I mean, does a lot of things right, but one is that it's never explained where he where he learned anything because earlier in the film, as you remember, Anthony Hopkins, someone I think John Gilgood says to him, "Is he is he an idiot?" And he like literally like in the the, the term, and, and Anthony Hopkins says, "I hope so." Like, I hope he is, because if he has any kind of self-awareness or self-consciousness, he's going to be in agony. And you get those those impressionistic things of his mother being, you know, attacked by the elephant as if that would explain what happened to him. But if if that was the case, we're never told, like, well, how did he learn to read? Was it his mother? He carries around the picture of his mother. But he, he seems to know more than his life experiences would lead you to believe he could know and there's no flashback that explains like he was taunted at school and this is like for the better i think yeah i i think if there's any sentimentality in the film it's that an untutored humanity leads to greater gentility this guy is a gentleman because he's not had the chance to become poisoned like the rest of you and i think i think that that's the one sentimental vein through the film but as it's proven out Oh, time and time again and over and over again the question is well is that sentimentalism or is that the truth and i i think that that that's the great uh the great tension of the film and that's what pops out in the psalm yes because there are times when i when i would accuse the movie of sentimentalism in my brain but then my heart sunk a little right because right but but is it but isn't that true what's your moment my moment is when he's at the theater 
and and everyone starts uh, starts applauding and Anthony Hopkins says stand up stand up and he tells John to stand up and that's just a, that's just a great moment and it's filmed beautifully and he's in the box in the theater but what I think it brings to mind is that he's always on stage the whole movie he's on stage he's on stage with Mr uh, Bites at the Freak Show he's on stage at the medical college when he's behind the screen in the, in the beginning when he gives a lecture He's on stage in his room for John Gielgud when he's in, he gets kidnapped and go, they bring him back to France. He's on stage and at the theater when he reads the Romeo and Juliet part with Mrs. Kendall, you know, he's, he's on a stage in, in his room, so to speak. Again, the, the movie always presents him as performing whether he wants to or not, because of the way he looks eventually, I think that leads to the ending is where he wants to try a different performance and he wants to try to act like somebody else. He finishes his model. He signs it and he takes a bow and he walks off stage. Okay, welcome back. So in part three, of course, we always talk about the title or the ending or the key takeaways. I, I think we got the title squared away. What do you think? Well, the title, I don't know, though, because it's, it, it is interesting that he's, the film could have been called John Merrick. Now, that's not as catchy as The Elephant Man. That's true. It's interesting that the, that Lynch titles the film you know, as this guy was known, and if and you could see another director saying, "No, no, we're gonna we're gonna title it John Merrick to call attention to his humanity." But I think David Lynch says, first of all, the Elephant Man is just a better title than John Merrick. You don't know anything, but the Elephant Man also suggests that, like, you are he is known as this thing, the Elephant Man, but he transcends it. Yeah, I, th- I think that that that's his public persona, and that it's um, you know. I'm sure we'll talk about this in a minute or so where we just touched on it, that when he lays down, right, when he signs the model, he signs it, John Merrick. And then it's and it's John who lays down in bed, not the elephant man. Right. We get we get a window into what's behind, you know, if you see a movie called Elvis, you know, that's that's the public. But you get a window behind into that. I think what's interesting about the ending and about that title is this whole movie is about, we said before, it's about performances. It's about the way you look. It's about our desire to look at other people. I thought of your favorite movie, Rear Window, watching this, right? Rear Window is very much about our desire to just stare at people. And we're not allowed to do that in public or else people will think you're crazy. And and rightly so. But Jimmy Stewart gets this kind of free pass where he can just watch people all day long with kind of like a free pass. So I think it taps into that because of course you you don't look away when you first see John and you can't look away in all those scenes because it's so compelling. It also reminds me of Sunset Boulevard. Now you might think, what in the world does it have to do with Sunset That is Boulevard? what I'm thinking. Yeah. Right? Well, what is she? How come they didn't need any dialogue? What does she say? We didn't need dialogue. We had faces. <laughs> we had faces. And that, you know, people with interesting faces are interesting to look at. Interesting could be a nice big adjective. And I think this film plays upon that is you can't look away from John, not because of the makeup, which of course you think about the wonderful the makeup, but because like there's something about his story that's so compelling is how do you rise above? How do you how do you rise above being known as the elephant man into something else? So you said one way he does it is through art, right? He makes his he makes his construction there on the, on the windowsill, he signs it, and we talked about acting. And I think at the end when he looks at that painting and then he decides to do his last performance, he says, Well, you know what? I'm gonna act like somebody who doesn't look like this. Right. I know this is my face, but I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to act like a, a quote unquote normal person. And it's the performance of a lifetime and it costs him his life. And he knows that at the end, we're also told vaguely that he's sick, but not how. And I think that that's what's so interesting about the end is he deliberately says, you know, I'm I, for one night, I'm going to act like everybody else. And so we're told in every after school special and every guidance counselor speech is that, oh, it doesn't matter what other people say. It doesn't matter. But 
it kind of does. And that he wants to be like other people, even for a night. And he can't get back from it. He also has the rear window moment, which is that he experiences a voyeurism of normalcy. He that's right. That's what it is when he's when he's visiting, when he's when he's watching. And his desire is to cross the threshold from voyeurism. He wants to get out of his apartment and into the other apartment, even if he only stays there one night. Yeah, he doesn't he doesn't witness a murder or or or, or like Miss Lonely Hearts or um or a, a love affair going on. He he's a voyeur. He's a voyeur into the into the world of just somebody sleeping in a bed. And, the, you know, and what the movie tells you is you can get into the other apartment, but the only way to go is out the window. Thanks for listening, everybody. We hope you enjoyed our conversation about the Elephant Man. Great pick, Mike. Follow us on Twitter at 15MINFilm. Also follow us on Letterboxd. Letterboxd. Let us know what we want to watch next. The Elephant Man is on Criteria now with a bunch of other David Lynch films. You can catch those and maybe we'll do another one, Mike. Uh, We should. 